Good morning. I'm Pastor Ruth, and on this Mother's Day, we are concluding our series, Chosen by God, Women in the Bible. And we've had a lot of questions and a lot of reactions, and it's, it's been interesting to hear how this lands with different people. Scott and I talked about the fact that we never uh, addressed directly women in ministry because we weren't teaching from the letters of Paul. So we wanted to offer a couple of resources uh, for those of you who might want more information. The first is that our senior pastor, Richard Dahlstrom, a number of years ago wrote a paper, a very thoughtful paper, paper that addresses uh, Jesus' attitude towards women, women leaders in the first century church, and also Paul's teaching, particularly in 1 Timothy. And that paper is available to you if you want to email Mary M., Mary M. at churchbcc.org. She'd be happy to send that out to you. It's a really thoughtful discussion of that, the issue of women leaders. The second resource is on the Bethany Greenlake Facebook page. And Pastor Richard has done, uh, I think there's four planned. I looked yesterday and I could only see one so far. But he's planned to tape discussions with uh, Dr. Sarah Koenig, who is the SPU professor of Old Testament. And they're in discussion on some of these specific topics about women uh, in relation to to ministry. So if you have lingering questions, please feel free to access both those resources. I have to admit I was a little reluctant. In fact, I wasn't scheduled to teach in this series, and that was just fine with me. Uh, Because as the series has gone on, it has really stirred up a lot in my own experience of 60-plus years in the church, and um, I have to admit there were a few tears even this week, (laughs) because I have, in fact, been a woman who has loved and desired to follow Jesus since the 1960s, some complicated times. But it was Heather's courage a couple of weeks ago where she shared both the blessing and and sometimes the deep scars that have been inflicted uh, for, for women leaders in the church, and her courage really gave me courage, encouraged me to share a little bit of my own story. I grew up in a church in Canada where I was truly loved and nurtured and where I saw females excluded from most levels of leadership. And I, as a little girl, came to some conclusions. Nobody had to tell me these things. Nobody taught this directly. But I came to three conclusions that were deeply held beliefs for me for a lot of years. One was that women were not worthy to handle the word of God. Another conclusion I came to was that God made a mistake when he made me. That somehow my gifts and my deepest desires were were wrong. And thirdly, I came to the conclusion that God is male. And as a little girl, those were things I tucked deep in my heart And I never left the church. I was always part of an organized church, and I did all the expected roles of teaching Sunday school and youth and providing food and hospitality to lots of people, and I loved those roles. But like many women in my generation, my passions and my gifts were really nurtured outside the church. I I was encouraged and grown in ministry outside the church. And for 20 years, I kind of sidestepped all those landmines of men and women serving together by working exclusively with women and children in an organization outside the church. And I really flourished there. And I'm so grateful 
for the opportunities and the encouragement I received through community Bible study. But God wasn't done with that little nine-year-old girl's heart. And he brought Bethany into my life five years ago. And then two years ago, moving here to North to work with the team here. And it's really, I can see a progression of healing for me, that I've got to work with this amazing group of men on staff, men who are deacons here, men who are small group leaders. I just want to say, there's been some healing. And I am so grateful for each of you that work with honor and respect with women as teammates. And if there's any tears this morning, they will be tears of gratitude. And tears that I too can offer at the feet of Jesus, just as the woman in our story does. Because she was truly seen by Jesus, she was forgiven by Jesus, and she was loved by Jesus. And I declare that so am I, and so are you. So if in any way you're feeling on the periphery tonight, or today, it might not be about gender, but for some other reason, if you feel like you don't have a place at this table, I hope that you will have the courage, as the woman in our story did, to draw near to Jesus anyway. Because Jesus sees us so that we can see him and find forgiveness and be released to new life. So let's pray as we open the scripture together. Awesome God, we are, we are grateful as your children that we're on a journey with you, that forgiveness is the beginning and the ongoing step that draws our hearts close to you in love, that as we, as we see ourselves in your eyes, we can address the things that are broken in us, we can find forgiveness, and we can move into new life. Lord, would you open our hearts to your word this morning? Would we hear you in Christ's name? Amen. Well, we read the entire story this morning from Luke 7, and if you... In your bulletin, if you're keeping notes, I actually, uh, on Thursday, changed the order. So we're going to start with Jesus sees the woman, and then go to Jesus sees Simon. But the center of the story is this woman. And reading the story, she is neither named, nor does she speak a word. And on my first reading, I thought, why did we choose this woman as, a, as an example in terms of um, the Bible's and Jesus' attitude towards women. But then I was struck by Jesus' words to Simon in verse 44, where he says, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And he turns to her, and he says it to Simon. He turns, and he acknowledges her. We know that Simon had taken notice of her and labeled her sinner, but Jesus is saying, Simon, you didn't really see her, did you? You put a label on her, you categorized her, you put her in a box so that you did not have to deal with her as a person. A lot of us grow up that way. We grow up with categories of people that we think we can dislike or people that we can ignore or people that we can even hate. But Jesus wiped all those categories away. Gender, religion, economics, ethnicity, even enemies are all included in God's plan of grace. There is no box anymore where as a follower of a Christ, I can place someone and not see them and not love them. The only category for a follower of Christ is to see human beings. 
created and loved by God. Sometimes I think we think this is God, (laughs) that he loves mankind, but he really doesn't like people all that much. But God, in fact, in this story, Jesus sees this woman and he loves her. He loves individual people. The NIV, I had a little difficulty with the title they put over this section. The titles are not inspired by God. (laughs) The title says, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Really? A sinful woman? Because that was Simon's label where he could dismiss this woman. Jesus said she was a forgiven woman who loved much. Psalm 103 says that God has not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus sees this woman, and Jesus calls her a woman who loved much. Jesus calls this woman a woman of extravagant love. He felt her tears and her hair, and her kisses, and the perfume. This brought to mind another story of a woman who was seen by God, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 16. She's the only human being who ever confers a name on God, and she is an Egyptian woman named Hagar. Hagar was a surrogate mother. She was a surrogate for Abram and Sarai, who were old and infertile, She gets pregnant. This is the very short version. If you want to go back and read it, read it. It's in Genesis 16. Uh, She becomes pregnant by Abram. And as you might, might guess, then there's some difficulties between Sarai and Hagar to the point that she runs away because Sarai abuses her. So she is this pregnant woman alone out in the desert when she encounters the Lord. We don't have to have time to actually talk about their whole conversation, but, it, it, but Hagar, as a result of that conversation, obeys God, returns to that really untenable situation, and has her son because of her new relationship with God. The conclusion of her conversation with the Lord is Genesis 16, 13, where she says, where, it's, where the writer says, she, Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. El Rohoi, the God who sees me. It's actually kind of a pun. I have now seen the one who sees me. God had this big plan for Abraham and Sarah as they became, but God also saw and cared for the surrogate Egyptian servant who they had abused and were happy to be rid of. Jesus saw and cared for this woman at the banquet who was already in Simon's house. For in the first century, banquets were often held in the courtyard. It was a public area where people could come and go, not behind a private closed door. And it was normal for other people to come and sit around, especially when there was a rabbi in town, listen to what the discussion was, listen to his teaching. Many of the poor would come so that they could enjoy at the end of the banquet the leftovers of the food. 
and then the invited men would recline on couches around the table. And Jesus said that from the moment that he reclined at table, she wet his feet with her tears, she dried them with her loosened hair, she kissed his feet and anointed them with costly perfume. We have to, as Americans, kind of step back from such a sensual scene because we are, have such a highly sexualized view of life. And truly, this is a picture of intimate devotion, which Jesus was comfortable accepting. Simon, in fact, wasn't so scandalized by what the woman did, by her actions at the banquet. He was scandalized by who she was. She shed tears of gratitude on the feet of the one who brought her forgiveness. And it might be also that she was actually shedding tears for the way that her Lord had been dishonored by Simon's lack of hospitality, by, in fact, his rudeness to this. Even though he was an invited guest, he was so rude, omitting all of the normal niceties uh, of someone coming into your home. Loosened hair was something that women only did in the privacy of their marriage and in the bedroom. And so there was a sense in which her loosening her hair was a sign of her vulnerability to Jesus and her willingness to be committed to him. Her kisses were also a normal action. Kissing the feet of a rabbi that you, that you were honoring was not an unknown idea so she was kissing as a, his feet as a sign of her respect for him. And then this perfume, this costly sacrifice that drew the attention of everyone there as, as the scent permeated the space. Because it's Mother's Day, I've been thinking a lot about spiritual mothers, women who loved Jesus devotedly and found ways to move towards Jesus, no matter what the ab- obstacles that were in the way. And I thought of my Aunt Janet, Uh, who served as a nurse and carried the good news to the country of Chad for four decades, actually more than four decades. And when she would come home to Canada to speak at church, of course she could only speak to women, but I often saw men sneak into her missionary talks because she was such a vibrant disciple of Jesus. And I think of Kitsy Gregory, a friend who courageously drew near to Jesus in hard times in life and then reached back to encourage and invite other women to follow Jesus and develop their gifts. Women who loved much, loved Jesus, and loved others well. And I hope today you might take the time to thank one of your spiritual mothers. Jesus sees this woman, but Jesus also sees Simon. Let's read in verse 39. It says, The Pharisee, who is Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw what the woman was doing and said to himself, not out loud, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Now, Simon didn't ask a question, did he? He didn't say a word out loud, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon thinks something to himself, and Jesus answers him, his unasked question. Romans 8 says that the Spirit searches our hearts. God knows our unasked questions. He knows our wordless sighs. 
He knows our aching groans because God sees you. God sees you. Whether you speak it out loud, whether you act it out loud, whether you ever tell him, God sees you. Jesus sees Simon, and what he sees in Simon is an overwhelming debt. Right at the center of our passage, Jesus tells this powerful story about overwhelming debt, and some of you might know what that's like. Maybe you bought your first house in 2008, or your education is over, but that great job has not materialized as you hoped, or maybe you've had medical bills that kind of multiply like rabbits. That's the kind of debt that this story in the middle of Luke 7 is about. It's not something a payday loan will fix. I want you to think. Think about your monthly income and then multiply that by 5 or by 50. Overwhelming debt. Both people in Jesus' story are unable to pay back this debt. And here's the point. Um, I... My daughter was a a pentathlete in college, and so she could jump. One of her events was long jump. She could jump pretty far. And I think we figured out that she could jump back to about where Nancy is in the fourth row when she was in college. And then we looked at Jackie Joyner Kersey. How many of you even, like, that's the 80s, so (laughs) some, some of you are like, what? She was the first American to hold the world record in long jump. And she could jump back, maybe back to that, first row of the second section there. Pretty, pretty good jumper. But if you lined up Shannon and Jackie at the Grand Canyon and told them to jump to the other side, would it matter how far they could jump? It was an overwhelming shortfall. Standing at the Grand Canyon, planning to jump, no one is going to make it. We all fall short. That's what the Bible's description of sin is, falling short. And Jesus sees that Simon is blind to the fact that he falls short, and it doesn't matter where he lands in in relation to other sinners. He falls short of God's glory. But I love that Jesus also didn't categorize Simon. He could have said Pharisee. He could have said enemy. He could have said rude host and put him in a box and and not acknowledged him. But Jesus doesn't dismiss him. Jesus sees Simon and he engages Simon as a precious individual with, first of all, the invitation, Simon, I have something to tell you. He gives Simon the choice to hear what he's going to say. And then after the story, he affirms Simon with these words, You have judged correctly. You got it. You got the story. But I think you and I often agree with that religious view that there are big sins and there are little sins. And many times what we elevate to be the biggest sins are the sins we don't struggle with. But I'm guessing that we don't always agree with God's perspective. In Proverbs 6, The writer gives us a list of things that God detests. Here are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in a community. 
Simon, we can infer, had several of those character traits that God finds detestable. But most important, and first on God's list, Simon was proud and arrogant. It's kind of a refrain through the book of Luke. Luke was a Greek who was an outsider, in a sense, to the gospel. And he writes particularly about the misfits, the poor, the racially and economic outsiders, women, and others who were considered outside as having powerful experiences of reversal of circumstances because of Jesus' ministry. While, on the other hand, the proud, the wealthy, and the powerful are left out. The proud, the powerful, and the wealthy are left out. They're not left out by Jesus. They're left out because they are blind to their own need. Jesus sees Simon's overwhelming debt, and even more deadly, Jesus sees that Simon is blind to the fact that he is in the category sinner. As I was thinking about this lesson about God seeing us so that we can see him, I thought how much, too, he longs for his people to see each other and to see other people. A woman at Bethany North bravely shared her story about her experiences in church and concluded with this. I've become practiced at staying on the sidelines of church. My antennae are always up to confirm the biases of men and also women in the church that have a certain limited role for me. And I'm sad when I check in with myself that I also don't feel free to soar. I simply don't want the battle, the risk of conflict or misunderstanding. I'd rather invest in individuals and children and the marginalized. I continue in the church to be unsettled cautious, reluctant to step up and speak out. I hear from people who don't feel seen in our church, and I know men can be just as invisible. Men can be stuck in boxes and categories every bit as much as women. But what categories do you think we might be blind to? I want you to actually give me some answers to that. That wasn't rhetorical. What categories of people do we perhaps not see People with understanding. Any other? The poor. Singles. The very old. The very young. Those with disabilities. LBGTQ. Sorry. Addictions, you both said it at the same time. That was, that was awesome. Yes, widows, children, singles. There are so many places that we can put people in a category and stop seeing them. But in God's sight, we are one category. Human beings loved, forgiven, and valued by God. Jesus sees Simon. Jesus sees the woman. And Jesus sees faith. Verse 48, Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Over and over, that's a refrain where Jesus connects faith and forgiveness and with, and with healing also. And so in the book of Luke, a couple of examples are Luke 5, where this, these friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. And Luke says, Jesus, seeing their faith, said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then earlier in this chapter, Luke 7, there's a Roman soldier. So one of the ocup- enemy occupying force comes to Jesus. And Jesus remarks on his faith and heals his servant, who isn't even present, in Luke 8, Jesus will use almost the exact same words as we read here for, for a woman who tries anonymously to touch Jesus' um, garment in the hopes of being healed. And Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So what is faith? Jesus is talking about something more than some kind of mental assent to the existence of God or even belief that God can do something like heal. He's talking about a relationship of trust. When Jesus chided the disciples for their lack of faith when they were in a storm, it wasn't that the disciples had suddenly forgot to believe that God existed, but that they stopped trusting the love of God, the provision of God, the plans of God. Faith trusts. Faith opens its arms to God's plans. Peter Marshall was a well-known pastor in Washington, D.C., and a chaplain in the U.S. Senate in the 40s. And his sudden death left his wife, Catherine Marshall, a widow at 35, raising a nine-year-old son. She went on to be a prolific writer, and she's one of my spiritual mothers, uh, who deeply affected me through her writings. Her writings also impacted Elizabeth Elliot, a young widow who was raising a child alone after her husband Jim was killed by the Aka tribe of South America. Many of you have heard of her. And Elizabeth and her daughter actually went back to that tribe and worked there for many years. But Elizabeth wrote to Catherine to thank her after reading her book To Live Again. Elizabeth's letter concluded with this. Your solution to grief is just another way of giving the same answer that God gave me in the first empty days after Jim died. Accept this. Accept this. Only in acceptance lies peace. Not in forgetting, nor in resignation, nor in busyness. His will is good and acceptable and perfect. Catherine Marshall and Elizabeth Elliot were both married to extraordinary men of faith who lived very short lives from our point of view. But God used the faith and trust these two women, these two widows, lived into in extraordinary ways to impact far more people than their gifted husbands ever did. Catherine Marshall explains faith this way. Once I thought that faith was believing this or that specific thing in my mind with never a doubt. Have you thought that was what faith was? Trying to really believe really hard, believe something specific? She says, now I know that faith is nothing more or less than actively trusting God. Faith is nothing more or less than actively trusting God. 
Jesus saw the deep trust of the woman in Simon's house. It was that deep trust that allowed her to courageously show her gratitude, her devotion, her vulnerability, her sacrifice, and her commitment to Jesus in this community that that disdained her. There's also a great connection in this story between our, our recognition of our forgiveness and our love for God. Last month, uh, I had the chance to be at Mount Angel Abbey in Salem, Oregon with some friends at a retreat. And uh, they do, uh, they pray the hours, and they, uh, which is all praying psalms. You get to go hear, listen to these wonderful uh, s- choirs sing six times a day. And there was a group of Catholic women from Bremerton who we kind of became friends with over meals and so they were explaining to us how it works and they said you know before Vespers you can go to confession and one of our one of my friends blurted out but we're Protestant and and she said oh that's right Protestants don't sin (laughs) and and we laughed kind of uneasily and I thought about how the regular practice of confession has lapsed among many of us And so today, I want us to kind of take the opportunity for each of us to let down our hair. Now, I know some of us have less hair to let down than others, but to let down our hair in the presence of Jesus, as this woman did, to let Jesus see you, to let Jesus see you this morning, to see him seeing you in your brokenness, in your love of him, in your faith, and in your doubt. I'm going to pray a short prayer of confession, and then we're going to have a few minutes here today to just listen to the Spirit, to see the Spirit seeing us so that we can find forgiveness should we need it, or even just to acknowledge our love of God. Let's pray. Merciful God, we confess to you now that we have sinned. We confess the sins that no one knows and the sins that everyone knows. We confess the sins that are a burden to us and the sins that do not bother us because we've grown used to them. We confess our sins as a church. We have not loved one another as Christ loved us. We have not forgiven one another as we have been forgiven. We have not given ourselves in love and service for the world as Christ gave himself for us. Father, forgive us. Send the Holy Spirit to us that he may give us power to live as by your mercy you have called us to live. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.